Hi, everyone. If you like Before Me, then we want to recommend an award-winning podcast called A Better Life. It's a show with deeply reported, sound-rich stories about how the lives of immigrants and their belief in the promise of America have changed during COVID. So stories on the show include how Atlanta's Ismaili Muslim community has adapted their grieving traditions during pandemic restrictions, and how COVID has intensified the debate over who gets to decide the future of Los Angeles Chinatown. The podcast centers journalists from immigrant backgrounds, and it's produced by Feet in Two Worlds. That's an organization that brings the work of immigrant journalists to podcasts, public radio, and online news. You can subscribe to A Better Life, that's with a question mark at the end, wherever you get your podcasts. And find out more at abetterlifepodcast.com. A quick warning before we start. This episode includes a couple brief mentions of rape and murder. We didn't know where we were going. We just knew we were leaving Cambodia, and we didn't know where we were going to make it or not. My mom, my dad, Kisong, and my sisters were reunited with my cousins, including Lin. The Vietnamese military had overthrown the Khmer Rouge and installed a new government in its place. But people in Cambodia still faced hardship, conflict, and uncertainty. My parents just couldn't see a future for their family in Cambodia or in Vietnam. So Kisong worked with another man for about six months to organize a boat escape. There were a lot of details to figure out. He had to find a captain, a boat engineer, and other passengers to join them. The whole thing cost them a lot of money because there were endless people who had to be paid off to make it happen. Days before the escape, my family returned to Cambodia. They were more familiar with Cambodia, so escaping from there made more sense than escaping from Vietnam. During that period, too many people escaped. So every move that you make, people want to know what you're doing there. Wherever, what a fun place that you say you're going, they start to question you what you're doing there. So we told them that we, uh, we're going to visit relatives. Yeah. So we did not escape right away. We have to stay, make believe that we stay in relative for a few days. Make believe that we'll be on the very, very visiting. They arranged for family to stay with, and it wasn't just organizing themselves. They had to make sure the rest of the passengers, many from Saigon, who weren't familiar with Cambodia, were taken care of as well. And every single town, you have to buy favor, give favors. And you don't know who. You know who to trust, who not to trust. Because some people, you, the minute you say you hire them, you need their help, they sell you, they notify the government, then the whole crews get, get to jail, you know. This escape would be one of many that were taking place throughout Southeast Asia. According to a 2000 report by the United Nations Refugee Agency, Cambodians, Vietnamese, and Laotians were leaving, all with the same goal to reach a refugee camp in Thailand, Malaysia, or the Philippines, and then be sent to a third country, like America, France, or Canada. They had all come to the same conclusion as my mom. It was too dangerous to stay in their homeland, and there was nothing left for them. 
So on a moonless night on January 30th, 1980, my mom went to White Horse Beach, the same place she would go swimming as a child. She was with my two sisters, Cam Van and Cam Lee, and my cousins, including Lynn, and about 40 other passengers. And my mom, just a few weeks shy of her 25th birthday, was six weeks pregnant with me. They all jumped onto a small boat, expecting Keesong to get on another boat heading to the same refugee camp. And then they left. I'm Lisa Fu. This is Before Me, the five-part story that follows my mom's journey from Cambodia to America and the long overdue conversation that helped us connect over our family's history. It was the most difficult moment that I had to face. I was thinking that, you know, how about if we don't make it, I bring my children to kill. It's just like a whole bunch of questions come to mind. My mom told me that as soon as they left shore, the Cambodian Border Patrol started firing at them. The boat captain managed to dodge the bullets and get away, overcoming what would be the first of several obstacles. The boat ride to Thailand would take two or three days. Don't forget, in, in developing countries, not like we have clip bar or anything to bring. We had to bring actually a bag of rice, and we have to bring a container of water so we can drink, we can cook the rice, and bring some coal, you know, pack some dry shrimp, dry fish, this and that. And uh, that's how we prepare to sustain us. My mom was in her first trimester of pregnancy, so she was always sick. Threw up constantly because the way, the morning sickness, oh my God, a small bowl and the way was so huge. And all I can have was water. Not, I could not keep anything down. And she didn't feel comfortable going to the bathroom in front of so many other people. So she'd hold it until dark. On the second day, a storm hit. The waves got even bigger, filling the boat with salt water. My mom said they had to pour out buckets of clean drinking water, using whatever containers they could find to bail out the boat. But you know, how much can you do? Not walk, keep coming all night long, all day long, you know? And then, when the captain said, if we continue like this, the boat going to sink. So now they start to throw some heavy rice, throw, throw some stuff. Some people have two, three luggages. The captain said, I'm sorry, you only can keep one. More and more belongings went out as waves continued to come in. Forget about cooking. I cannot cook. The wave like this, you know, you cannot cook. Everybody starving and fighting with the water and, and just... Some people got so sick. And I remember, I think Min, Min of Kuang, oh my God, they were green. They were green, they were so sick. My mom says that as they were sinking deeper into the water, they saw another boat in the distance. Everyone screamed for help, and the boat came. It was a Thai fishing boat, much bigger than theirs and towering over them. To get the women and children from one boat to the other, 
a fisherman hung between the two, holding onto the fishing boat with one hand and grabbing the passengers with the other. The ocean was raging all around them. If they make mistake, they drop my kid. One drop, they dead. Oh my God, my heart just sinks. My heart just, just horrified. I was so horrified, you know. All the women and children made it safely on board. The men stayed on the smaller boat, which was no longer sinking. They tied it to the Thai fishing boat with some rope and trailed behind. First thing, before anything else, I advise everybody to touch the little piece of the black oil from the engine and we make ourselves look so ugly because there's a lot of rib cases. So all the women, they do it. All the teenage girls, they did it. So thank God they, they didn't do anything to us. During this time of mass escaping, Thai pirates would target unarmed boats, rob the refugees on board, and sometimes kill them. But that didn't happen to my mom. She says each family paid the fishermen in gold. Then they were nice, though not the best cooks. They cooked the crab that they, they caught, and they tried to stir-fry the Thai flavor beef. Oh my, it was so hot, so spicy, that the children couldn't eat. <laughs> It was so hot, full of chili peppers. And the crab was raw. <laughs> when you open it, it's all raw, you know. And the rice was raw too. So we just ate a little bit. We were so starving. On the third day, the women and children went back onto their smaller boat by the same terrifying method because it was illegal for Thai fishing boats to rescue refugees. A few hours later, they arrived at the Lem Singh camp. I was so thrilled that we still alive. We made it. We made the journey. But another thing is that now what? No husband, whole bunch of children, and pregnant. How are we going to live? I didn't know what in front of me. Oh, I knew that I make the boat journey and I don't have to die sinking in that Pacific Ocean. That's all I knew. They went through registration and slept under an open-air tent for the first couple of nights. It's not like you go to refugee camp, they give you my housing. No, you have to find your own housing. So I, I got so lucky, right? This gentleman, I, I was walking, walking, and then he said hello to me. He said, yeah, you just came, right? I said, yeah, I just came. I said, I'm looking for a place to stay. I have children. I have no husband. I'm, I'm, I'm so desperate for a place to he said, oh, don't you worry. I'm leaving. I'm leaving in two days. I'm selling my place. You know, I can sell my place to you. Very cheap. My mom took some jewelry that she had transported in secret compartments sewn into her clothing, sold it for Thai currency, and used that to buy the house. It was on the water and off the main road, which led to a grocery store. The house was made of bamboo, and it would stay cool with the ocean breeze, even on the hottest days. She invited another woman and her two children, who had also been on the boat, to join them, and they settled in together. Food at the camp was scarce. They were given two-day rations only twice a week, with rice, old vegetables, and small fish. My mom's gold stash was dwindling, and she had no idea how long she'd have to make it stretch. 
When she arrived at the camp, my five-foot-tall mom weighed under 80 pounds, but she had no appetite, so she went to see an herbalist. And he said, oh my God, if you continue like this, you're not, not able to keep your baby because you're so weak. Of course I'm weak, you know, I'm so worried and I, I, I didn't have enough to eat and worry about the months ahead of how I'm going to get food. And uh, he said, first, I need to give you acupuncture. After the treatment, she regained her appetite. Then she had a maternity outfit made, the only one she'd have throughout her time at the camp. It was a thin polyester shirt that accommodated her growing belly. She washed it every night and wore it every day. And all along, my mom was still wondering where her husband was. A few times a week, boats would come into the camp and my mom checked every one looking for my dad. But every time I went there, your father wasn't there. And all I saw was this tragic. I saw body without head, body without arm, because women get raped by the Thai pirate. And uh, when the men try to stop them, they, they cut up the limb, they kill them. So that body come, you know, I, oh, so many strategies. All people came in and just like us, made it but have that. <sighs> it was hard. She didn't know if her husband was alive or dead, and there was no way to contact him or to find more information. But the family had to keep moving forward and find a new home. After the break, my mom tries to create that home in the United States. Asian America, the Ken Fong podcast is one of the longest running weekly shows that spotlights the compelling journeys and stories of Asian American culture makers and shapers. Recently, Asian America was ranked number three by Feedspot.com in their list of the 30 most influential American culture podcasts. I'm Dr. Ken Fong, the director and host, and I hope you'll give me a chance to win you over too. New episodes drop every Sunday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about any other podcast platform. Just search for Asian America, the Ken Fong Podcast. My mom originally wanted to go to Australia. It was closer to Cambodia than the U.S. or Canada, and the climate was more similar. But when she was interviewed by the International Rescue Committee, it was with Americans. So she knew she was headed to the U.S., but she didn't know much else. The only image she could think of was the Chinatown she'd seen in Bruce Lee movies. I said, oh my God, look so fast, lifestyle so fast. And without a husband, how are I going to earn a living? How are I going to make it? How are I going to do it against all kind of questions? And now the U.S. is going to sponsor me to take us away from the title of PG camp according to all the information we get. But then what, you got there, then what? How are you going to live? I mean, how, what kind of job are you going to have? You know, all kind of questions, you know. My family had to fill out paperwork, go through procedures and medical tests, and bide their time. But my mom never just stayed home. She was always out, her two daughters trailing behind. Because I'm the head of the house. You cannot stop in, in one place. You have to get out and listen to information, obtain information. What's the next step, next step? 
Meanwhile, in Chappaqua, New York, not exactly Chinatown, the Quaker Friends Meeting House committed to sponsoring a refugee family from Southeast Asia. On February 12th, less than two weeks after my family reached the refugee camp, a couple, Melissa and Walter Kaufman Bueller, sent a letter to the International Rescue Committee. In the letter, they wrote, we would like a family of four to six persons, including children, preferably Cambodian. The Friends Meeting House had originally started what they called the Quaker Refugee Project in 1978. And they picked it up again in January 1980, around the same time my family escaped from Cambodia. My family spent about five months in Thailand before being notified they were going to leave. They were lucky in that way. Others would live in the camp for years. At the end of June, my family left the camp by truck. They boarded a 747 jet in Bangkok, headed for the United States. It was loaded with refugees. They got off the plane in San Francisco on June 29, 1980. California was cold. Imagine my flood was so thin. We, came, we lived in Southeast Asia all our life, and we didn't come prepared. It's not like the kid was closed. No, we were so freezing. We were freezing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They stayed there for two days, filling out paperwork and making sense of their new surroundings. The kid, they were so horrified to see red hair, blue eyes. They hold on me very tightly. They didn't know what's going on, and they couldn't understand a word of what they hear. You know, it's like an alien nation. I kept looking at Kem Wan and Kem Lee and kept looking at Kwang Lin. They were horrified themselves because they didn't know what the future would bring either. But we knew we have each other. We knew that we had our family stick together, and that's all I know. In those first few days in California, everything was very structured. My mom says they just followed everyone else. Then an interpreter told her she was going to be permanently resettled in New York. So you're still wearing the same clothes that you're wearing, like, at the refugee camp? Uh, yeah, the same shirt. <laughs> I wore that same shirt. Yep. They flew to JFK International Airport on July 1st and landed in the evening. A young Cambodian man told my family they'd be staying with a church family and the husband would be picking them up. That's how they met Walter Kaufman Bueller from their sponsor family in Chappaqua. He came, oh my God, he didn't comb his hair and he wore a very sloppy shirt and, and half in, half out and his shoe was so old. And Chile and I look at each other and say, oh, oh, we got sponsored by a poor guy. <laughs> For the whole car ride, my mom and Lynn worried about where they'd end up. But when they stepped out in the town of Mount Kisco, New York, they breathed a sigh of relief. When they got to the house, we said, wow, this is a nice house. And they only live, you know, we call the East Wing the West Wing. We live in the East Wing, they live in the West Wing. My family stayed there for six weeks before the Quakers found a house in Chappaqua for them to rent. I was born a couple weeks later. My cousins enrolled in school, and that first winter, my mom got a part-time job as a manicurist at the Michelle Danielle Beauty Salon, just a short walk from the house. She would keep working there for seven years, 
and still works in cosmetology today. My mom says the hardest obstacles about living in America were the language and getting around. If it was walkable, my mom walked. Otherwise, she relied on the public bus and the kindness of others. Thank God I'm a likable. So I have many friends from Vietnam, among Vietnamese, Cambodian populations. So they, they kind of take turns to take me to Chinatown, to Saprai. Food and grocery shopping definitely took some getting used to. The first time I chased chicken, I almost throw up. Because we, we grew up, we used to have organic chicken. And the chicken there, we, we kill alive. So it's so fresh, but this chicken here in the refrigerator for days. And so it tastes mushy and soft and this and that. And it's not like whatever we want to buy is there. No, only if I go to Chinatown, I got I to buy what I want. American supermarket is so limited. And even the fruit, we're so used to tropical fruit. But over here, all we had is banana, apple, and you know that. I was very excited to see, first time to see apple though. So many apples, because apple is imported in Cambodia. So I'm so to see, wow, apple, so many apples. Life in America could also be very isolating. My mom was used to walking just a few steps to see a neighbor or a good friend. But in Chappaqua, there was more distance between people. The Quaker set my mom up with a volunteer English tutor, a Chinese woman named Mary Ho. She and my mom met once a week to work on grammar and pronunciation. But then, you know, after a few weeks, we became such a great friends. In that hour, we maybe studied 20 minutes and the rest we're talking. She shared her experience, I shared her experience, just do a lot of talking. We became friends for years. My mom also watched PBS with her daughters, memorized 10 new English words every day, and taped notes on the refrigerator. Because I'm the head of the house, I need to communicate with teachers, I need to go to supermarket, I need to talk to the doctors. So I was so eager to learn, you know. I just wish I could know overnight, you know. So I worked very hard on it. She learned English in a year and started tutoring others soon after. And the language wasn't the only thing she picked up quickly. When I was learning about this for my mom, I found a note written by Meredith Weddle, who coordinated the Quakers' efforts to sponsor my family. Here's what she wrote. Had we not been blessed with Lon, who was so quick, intelligent, courageous, and capable, it might not have proceeded so fruitfully. How she coped with learning about bank accounts and checks, supermarkets and schools, and delivered little Lisa during it all is a marvel. But as my mom was settling in, things started to hit hard. Back when my parents decided to leave Cambodia, they thought they'd be together, raising the family. Instead, she finally heard that Kisong had been arrested in Vietnam for helping others escape. He'd been in jail ever since. The Quakers began a concerted, complicated effort to reunite Kisong with us. For years, there were letters and notarized forms going between the U.S., Vietnam, and Thailand to all kinds of agencies, like the State Department, various U.S. embassies, U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service, Department of Justice, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and the International Rescue Committee. 
My father's name was one of more than 20,000 others being submitted in just one year to the ODP, the Orderly Departure Program. In the meantime, my mom focused on taking care of us. She did everything for the family while still navigating the trauma of everything she'd experienced. And she wasn't over the fact that she lost most of her family during the war, including her firstborn. Every single face is so in my dream all the time, you know, especially when I cannot sleep. All my family members appear and, and all the nightmare that I saw them get took to kill. Stuff like that, you know, come and go. So she went to see a therapist. Dr. Yaya. He was Chinese? No, he's Indian. Oh. Yeah, Dr. Yaya. How did you find him? <laughs> I still remember. Well, the, the Quaker, Quaker members found him for me. You told them that you needed? Well, they can tell. They can see how depressed I was. They can see my faith. They can see that, you know, I'm, I got the point that they worry about me worry about that my three kids here, no one taking care of, you know. They said, oh, you, you need to see a therapy. That doctor assigned my mom to someone else in his practice, someone who didn't understand at all what she had gone through. I didn't like her at all, no. She's, uh, first, I have language problem, and she speaks, she spoke so fast. And she, she didn't know my problem. She just said, oh, maybe you need medication. You have chemical imbalance. I said, no. I helped with her. So I, I fired her. I went to Larry. My mom talked to the pastor at the Baptist church near home, a kind man named Larry Bethune. They talked once a week for two years. And so was it just talking about it that helped? or? Well, he talked he talk about it and I, he... He also prayed for me every time. And he understand he can relate my problem, you know. He said, going to what you're going to, I will be depressed too. That's why he said, anybody will be depressed. I find that I, I can tell him everything. And he understood everything, what I'm going to, you know. Yeah, sometimes these professionals, they, they haven't lived to war. They haven't lived to tragedy that war caused, and so they, they have no clue. Yeah. My mom eventually came out of that intense stretch of depression. I mean, I have to survive for your girls. But these struggles would return from time to time throughout my mom's life, especially during Christmas and New Year's, when she has time and space to reflect. She says holidays are tough because she thinks about her family a lot. Did you ever want to tell, like, Kim Van or Kim Lee or I about stuff? Tell you girls? Yeah. Well, no. Just you girls, too, came to America without language, with so many to adapt. So the whole new world to us. That's why I, I just try to leave everything behind and let you, you know, let you absorb the new thing that you need to be and... I, I'm planning that one day when you're interested, then, then I'll tell you. As a kid, I had everything I needed. Still, I remember always hearing that Kisong would be coming to join us. 
And in 1990, 10 years after we'd arrived, it finally happened. But after about a year and a half, he left our home. It turned out that after a decade of only sporadic communication, he wasn't a close part of our family anymore. And he found adapting to a new life with us too difficult. Here we were, this adjusted American family, and there he was, alone and struggling. Couldn't speak the language, couldn't drive a car, couldn't fit in with this family that seemed so foreign. After he left New York, he moved to California and lived there for about 20 years, before eventually returning to Cambodia. That's where my husband and I visited him in 2012. We stayed with Kisong for a few days in his home, meeting his new family and other relatives who were still in the area. He still didn't really speak English, so our conversations were very limited. The entire experience was fun and strange all at the same time. Kisong fed us durian straight from the tree every day, and he drove us around, showing us the movie theater my parents used to go to, the market where my mom worked. And we visited White Horse Beach, the place where my family made their escape. When I got there, what I saw was a really lovely place to watch the ocean and fishing boats. It was built up, developed, with nice white fencing and ornate light poles. It was a beautiful day. I wish my mom could have been there with me. Next time on Before Me. Because of you two, give me so much strength. Give me strength to survive. I examine my relationship with my mom. We cry together. And I realize even though I hadn't been born yet, I played an important role in her journey. This episode was written and produced by me. Our editor is Julia Shu. Fact check by Harsha Nahata and Tiffany Bowie. Production management and sound design by James Boo. And additional help from Kathy Irway. Original theme music by Avery Stewart. Audio engineering by Dave Waldron and Timothy Lou Lee. This episode is dedicated to Melissa Bueller, Mary Ho, and the late Meredith Weddle, who once wrote, If you reach for the humanity in people, they will respond. As always, special thanks to my mom. If you want to record an oral history interview with someone you love, even if you've never tried it before, check out selfevidentshow.com slash history, where you'll find a free toolkit to help you take the next step. Before Me is a self-evident media production. Our executive producers are James Boo, Ken Ikeda, and me. The show also receives support from the Alderworks Alaska Writers and Artists Retreat and the Juno Arts and Humanities Council. I'm Lisa Fu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>